everyone, I hope you're all doing so well and welcome back to the Criminal Makeup Podcast. Each episode we dive into the minds of some of the worst criminals in history and today we are going to be talking about the case of Polly Class. So today we are going to be talking about another abduction case and these cases really are just the worst and today we are talking about the kidnapping of 12 year old Polly Class. So Polly was just living in California. She was only 12 years old, you know, she was loving life, having fun. And she had one big fear in her life, which was being kidnapped from her own home. That was truly her worst nightmare. And then one night back in 1993, Polly's worst fear came true. She was in the middle of a slumber party in her very own home. And she was having a great time with her friends when she was abducted late at night from her very own home. Which just makes this so much worse because you're supposed to feel safe in your own home. And this became a huge story. It made news nationwide. Everyone was praying for Polly's return. She became known as America's Child. It was the first case to ever really blow up on the internet. And even Winona Ryder gets involved. And the evil perpetrator behind this was a man named Richard Allen Davis. And he is the absolute worst. He is a violent career criminal. He was a serial predator. And something that becomes very apparent in this case is that Richard Allen Davis should never have been walking the streets to even abduct Polly Class. So that is what we are going to be looking into today. So let's dive in. Richard Allen Davis was born on the 2nd of June, 1954, making him a Gemini. And he grew up in the small remote town of La Honda in the Santa Cruz Mountains in California, where he lived with his parents, Robert and Evelyn, and his two older brothers and his two younger sisters. So he is the middle child, right smack bang in the middle. And as a young boy, Richard was described as a nice quiet, shy boy. He was caring, he was well behaved. However, there was one problem and that is that Richard had an absolute terrible home life. First of all, both of his parents were raging alcoholics and they put alcohol before their children. His parents were also very argumentative, violent to each other, especially Richard's dad, Robert. He was very abusive to Richard's mom and Richard had to witness a lot of this. Robert was described as a cold, angry, distant man. He would also not only beat his wife up, he would also beat up his sons, which of course included Richard. So his dad was not a great person, but if anything, his mom, Richard's mom, Evelyn, was even worse. She was also very cold, very callous. She was so emotionally detached from her children. For example, she wouldn't even hug her children, like nothing. The children were also not allowed to show her affection. She was just completely closed off, so cold. She was a very strict disciplinarian. And if the children ever stepped out of line, she would be very quick to serve out punishments. One day, Richard, he's only three years old when this happened. He was playing with a box of matches, which first of all, I have a lot of questions. Why the hell does a three-year-old have access to matches? But that's beside the point. But Evelyn, the mom, thought, oh, I'm going to teach you a lesson. You don't play with matches. So she grabbed Richard's hand and took him over to the stove and held his his hand over an open flame. And she held it there 
until the skin started to blister. I just have no words. She was just stood there burning her son's hand. And this was actually her favorite punishment because she would do this quite often. Later on in life, whenever the children were caught smoking, for example, Evelyn would hold their hand over the stove. And neighbors actually witnessed Evelyn doing this to her children. And first of all, they were shocked beyond belief that she was doing this. But what the neighbors couldn't get over is that the children just stood there and took the pain and didn't even scream or cry out or shout or anything. The children were just stood there with their hand over an open flame, letting their skin blister and there was no emotion on their face. Because the children were just resigned to their fate, they accepted their punishment and they were so used to it, it was almost like they had gotten used to the pain. I just have no words. Like I have no words. How do children become so numb to pain, to that kind of pain as well, a flame blistering your skin? So that was the mom. Like I said, she was even worse than Richard's dad. Now, when Richard was 11 years old, his parents did divorce and the children were asked which parent they wanted to live with. And all of the children chose their dad, which I think says a lot. Because remember, their dad is also physically abusing them. He's beating them quite regularly, but none of the children can stand their mom. And from this moment on, Evelyn would actually kind of disappear from the children's life. She wouldn't really have anything to do with her children. She was actually glad to get rid of them. So after the divorce, the dad bought a different house in La Honda. And it would be really hopeful that things could improve for the children from this moment on. But that would not be the case. Because first of all, the dad was never at home. He was away at work a lot of the time. So the children actually had to look after themselves. And when I say the dad was away for work, I mean he literally was away for days at a time. He would just leave his young children at home on their own. And Richard's dad was also emotionally detached from his children. He just didn't even know his children. One time he went to like a parent's evening at his kid's school. And when he got to the school, he was asked by someone, what grade is Richard in? And he got the answer wrong by two whole years. Let that sink in. What parent gets the answer to the question, what grade is your child in? What parent gets that question wrong? But he didn't just get it wrong. He got it wrong by two years. And whenever his dad was at home, he was very, very unstable. He would suffer from hallucinations. He would often just go into the backyard and shoot his gun at the sky because he said that he could see things flying by and coming down from the sky. And he is still beating his sons, by the way. They are still being subjected to physical abuse. But Richard seemed to get the most abuse out of all of the children. There was one time his dad beat him so hard, he actually broke his jaw. They would also move house all of the time. There was just no stability. And then when Richard was only 14 years old, his younger sister, who was only 10 years old at the time, she died of an unknown illness, which is just so incredibly sad. And this is when Richard's mom, Evelyn, pops back up because she did attend the funeral, but she ignored all of her children at the funeral. I'm surprised she even turned up at the funeral, if I'm being honest. And that was Richard's childhood. No stability. Both of his parents have abused him from a very young age. He doesn't get any emotional support. And as you can imagine, this did not have a positive effect on Richard. Richard, from a young age, battled a lot of inner demons. He blamed himself for his parents' divorce. He put all of that 
start playing on himself. He had to take on so much responsibility as a child. He actually had to become an adult. He wasn't a child. He had to cook and clean and look after his other siblings. He was also exposed to extreme violence from a very young age. He had to witness it and experience it himself. And unfortunately, him being raised like this, for Richard, it only was going to end up one way. And that is criminal activity. And bloody hell, Richard has one of the most detailed, most extensive criminal backgrounds I have ever come across in these videos. He became an absolute nightmare in the neighborhood. He became an absolute nightmare at home and at school. And I've got to give a warning right now. Um, we are going to be talking about animal abuse. So if you don't want to hear about animal abuse, which I can understand, maybe skip forward a couple of minutes because it is pretty extreme. So Richard started killing and torturing animals. Yeah, we've gone in at the deep end. It is said that Richard from a very young age, I don't know exactly what age, but a very young age, he would walk around the neighborhood and try to find as many cats as he possibly could. He would then pour gasoline over these cats and he would set them on fire. He would then kill stray dogs before skinning them. And then there was this other occasion where Richard decided to catch a dying fox. And this fox, it was already covered in maggots. He killed the fox. He completely completely skinned it and then he took the remaining carcass into school. I just don't understand what the hell. And he decided to play a prank on a girl that he didn't like. So he put the carcass of the fox, which was covered in maggots, in her locker. The girl, she obviously didn't know what was in her locker. She just put her hand in her locker without looking just to grab some books. And when she pulled her hand out, she actually had her hand covered in maggots. Understandably, she has been completely traumatized by this experience. As a young teenager, approximately about the age of 14, Richard would also go around the neighborhood. He would intimidate and bully other people. He would always carry a knife with him as well. People would avoid him because he was always just looking for trouble. He was always looking to start a fight. And then at the age of 15, he decided that he wanted to do some more criminal activity. So he started to break into people's homes and steal their belongings. And his dad at one point even called the police on him because he couldn't handle him. His dad told the police that his son should be taken away because he is incurable. And I just think, wow, the audacity. Wow. It's like you created this. What were you expecting? Following this, Richard was cautioned in juvenile court, but did this stop him? No, of course not. He got so much of a thrill out of breaking into people's homes, invading their privacy, that he continued to do it. He wasn't very good at it, so he got caught again. And he ended up in juvenile court again for theft of a motorcycle. And this is just when he is aged 17. And this time, the judge gave him two two options. The judge said to him, you can either go to juvie or join the army. And Richard chose to join the army. So at the age of 17, Richard joins the army and he is flown straight out to Germany. However, did he do very well in the army? Mm -mm. No, of course he didn't because he continued to rob and steal at any chance he was given. He also repeatedly failed to turn up to duty 
and he was also caught taking drugs on multiple occasions. So after 13 months, he was kicked out. He was given a dishonorable discharge. And this is all when he's only 17. How much has already happened? So now we get to 18. Obviously, Richard is at home after his discharge. And then something very, very, very significant happened. And this actually gets missed out on a lot of the reporting on today's case, but I thought that this was pretty significant, so I wanted to include it. So when Richard is 18 years old, he gets a girlfriend. His girlfriend was called Marlene Voris, and she had attended the same high school as Richard, that is how they knew each other. And then one night on the 12th of October, 1973, Marlene was throwing a party at her house because she was leaving to go and join the Navy. And she was so excited about joining the Navy. This is something that she'd always wanted to do. And she was throwing this party. She was celebrating. It was all going great. There was lots of other people from their high school at the party. It was a great party. Everyone was having a great time. So after the party, when it was ended, Richard and a bunch of his other friends left. And then Richard, as soon as they left the house, Richard said to his friends, oh, I forgot something. I need to go back inside. So his friends waited outside for him. And then all of a sudden they heard one single gunshot ring out from inside the house. The police were called and when they arrived, they find Marlene Voris dead at the scene with no less than seven suicide notes around her. Now the friends that were waiting outside the house, they were convinced, and I mean absolutely convinced, that when Richard had walked back inside that house, he held a gun to Marlene's head, forced her to write those suicide notes, and then killed her. That is what his friends are convinced happened. Because it made no sense to anybody why Marlene would take her own life. She was in the prime of her life. She was so happy. She was excited about joining the Navy. And I know you truly never know what is going on in someone's life, but everyone was pretty convinced that Richard did this. Why are they so convinced that Richard did this if he didn't do this, you know? And given what Richard goes on to do, for the rest of this case, I am pretty convinced that he did do this. But instead, Richard told the police that Marlene had taken her own life in front of him and the police ruled it as a suicide. I don't really think they even did that much investigation. So right now, Richard possibly has just gotten away with murder. And when I was researching this case, I didn't really see that many sources talk about this incident and I'm like, why? I think that this is very important to this case that he commits murder at the age of 18, or at least we think he may have committed murder at the age of 18. So following the apparent suicide, Richard was apparently very traumatized and distressed by the situation. And he used this as an excuse Mm -hmm. Yeah, he used this as an excuse to go on an incredibly long crime spree. And prepare yourselves, this crime spree, it is very long, it is very extensive. So just a week after the murder of his girlfriend, he breaks into someone's home. It was like a little cabin and this person wasn't at home and I'm actually thankful for that. And he uh, drank all of their alcohol, stole some of their belongings and completely trashed the place. He then went on to commit a load of burglaries. And I mean a load. He committed 
20 over such a short period of time. And thankfully he was caught for one of these burglaries and he was sent to prison and he was given a six month sentence, which honestly just doesn't seem long enough to me. So then he was released after six months and five weeks after his release in 1974, he is arrested again for a load more burglaries. It was also found that during that five weeks where he was out of prison, he had gotten involved in gang activity and dealing drugs. And during his time out of prison, he actually ended up screwing over some ex-prison inmates or something like that. And he ended up getting shot twice in the back. For those other burglaries and the drug activity and all stuff like that, he was currently 20 years old. And he was given a sentence six months to 15 years in prison, which is definitely a very weird sentence. It's like six months to 15 years. But he was released just after 24 months. He's now 1976 and Richard is 22 years old. So he gets out of prison when he's 22, but does he learn his lesson? Oh no, of course not. Because his spree continues and it gets worse because before we've just been talking about like thefts and stuff, which obviously do harm people, but his crimes so far haven't really been violent towards individuals. Well, now his crimes turn violent and also sexual. Because on the 24th of September, 1976, a 26-year-old legal secretary, Frances May. She had just gotten off the train from her way home from work. And as she approached her car, a man ran up behind her with a knife. And of course it was Richard and he forced her into the car. He got in next to her. He hit her over the head. She was crying. She was panicking. And Richard started to drive away with Francis in the car next to him. And after driving in that car for 20 minutes, I cannot even imagine what that 20 minute car drive would have felt like for Francis. Richard pulled over in an isolated area. He then exposed himself to Francis and said, you know what I want you to do. He was holding her at knife point, by the way, when he did this. And he grabbed her head and started pushing her head towards him. But Francis wasn't having any of this. She actually grabbed the knife and she grabbed the blade of the knife. And I don't even know how she did this. I mean, Oh my God. So she had her hand around the knife blade and with her other hand, she opened the car door and she managed to escape the car screaming. Her hand was obviously pouring with blood and she managed to flag down a passerby in another car. Now, unbelievably, the passerby that she flagged down was an off-duty police officer and the police officer managed to find Richard who had ran off at this point, tracked him down and arrested him. And wow, 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 wow. I am so glad that Francis managed to escape. I really am. So because Richard was on parole when he committed this, he was sent straight back to jail. And when he is there, he talks to a psychiatrist and Richard said that he sexually assaulted Francis because he heard a voice in his head, which was a voice of a woman. And Richard was convinced that it was Francis's voice in his head. And this voice of a woman said to Richard, I wonder what it's like to be raped. So Richard essentially was like, okay, so your wish is my command. And that is his reason why he attacked Francis. He said that he was still hearing voices when he was in jail. And he also faked hanging himself. Yeah, it was fake. 
tried to fake it. And he had a master plan because he wanted to be transferred to a psychiatric hospital, which is exactly what happened. And why did he want to be transferred to a psychiatric hospital? Because he wanted to escape, which again, is exactly what happened. When he was being transported from the jail to the psychiatric hospital, he escaped. Don't know how, but somehow he managed to escape. And when he is on the run, he goes on another crime spree. So on the first night of him being free, he broke into a 32-year-old woman, Marjorie Mitchell's home. She was fast asleep in bed and he crept up next to her and smashed her over the head with a fireplace poker. She woke up screaming. There was blood pouring from her head and Richard fled the home. Marjorie actually needed 30 stitches from her head injury. Again, Richard would later tell psychiatrists that he had another voice in his head. It was a woman again. And this woman wanted to know what it would feel like to be assaulted, to be beaten with a fireplace poker. And he also said that it felt good to beat up Marjorie. It released some tension in him. Now, I don't know if this voice thing is actually true or not, because Richard tends to fake things and he lies, but maybe some of it's true. I, I don't know. I mean, his dad also was prone to hearing voices and hallucinating, so I don't know if there is something there. The very next day after he attacked Marjorie, because even though she reported it, he fled and no one caught him, Richard was back again committing crime. He broke into a nearby animal shelter where he stole some money and drugs. Don't worry, he didn't harm any animals. He also stole a shotgun from the animal shelter, which is never good. Three days later, he broke into 40-year-old Hazel Frost's car. And with the shotgun that he had stolen, he pointed the shotgun at her neck and told her to drive. Terrified Hazel drove for about half an hour with the shotgun in her neck. He told her to pull over to a gas station. He then got some tape and started to bind her hands. But as he was doing this, Hazel managed to open the car door, roll out of the car and grab a gun that she kept under her car seat and she started to shoot at Richard. He ran from the car, she fired about four or five shots at him, none of which hit him, and Richard ran off and Hazel was able to jump in her car and drive off and escape. Again, another person that has managed to escape from him, which I am so glad about because he is capable of horrific things. And Richard again has used the excuse that he attacked Hazel because he hurt a voice in his head. A voice of a woman wondering what it would be like to be assaulted and kidnapped. But also Richard, because Hazel was alone, he assumed that she was single and that because Hazel was single, she wouldn't mind being assaulted and kidnapped. Richard has been on a five-day crime spree at this point and it's crazy that he is supposed to be in prison <laughs> and he has escaped. This is all when he has escaped and is on the run. So five days into his crime spree, he breaks into another home. This home belongs to Josephine. She wasn't home when he broke in and he started going through her things. He stole some of her jewelry and he waited in her house for her to return home because he wanted to tie her up. And just the thought of this um, got him so excited that he got himself off on it. So Josephine did return home, but she wasn't alone. She was with a group of friends. And because she wasn't on her own, Richard panicked and he abandoned his plan. And he escaped through the back door and hid in some bushes. But when Josephine returned home, she could tell that someone had been in her house. So she immediately called the police. They came out and they found Richard 
hiding in the bushes. So he was rearrested and taken back to prison. And that was his five day crime spree when he had escaped on the way to a psychiatric hospital. It really is just crazy that he was able to do all of that. So he ended up back in court and he received a bunch of new sentences. He received one to 25 years for the kidnap of Francis, which was obviously the original charge before he escaped. He received an extra two years for the assault on Marjorie and Hazel and six months to 10 years for the burglary of Josephine's home. So that adds up to to a lot of years, a lot of years, and he should not have been released. He should be spending a good portion of the rest of his life in prison. He is a violent offender. He has escaped from prison and committed more violent offenses. He has proven that he is not going to stop. So he should not be given parole, early parole. Mm, no way. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. Because even though he has multiple sentences, one of which goes all the way up to 25 years, he only served six years in prison. Mm -hmm. Yep, and then he was paroled. Make it make sense. It doesn't, does it? No. So Richard is 28 years old when he gets released from prison this time. And does he plan on stopping committing crime anytime soon? Of course he doesn't. This time he goes all Bonnie and Clyde. Mm -hmm. Yep, he finds himself a little girlfriend who was a married mother of two, Susan Edwards. And oh my God, is Susan a piece of work? And the two of them became partners in crime. The two of them would roam around California and Washington and Oregon and they would deal drugs. They would rob banks and restaurants and retail stores at gunpoint. Most of the time it was Richard doing most of the robbing and Susan would be the getaway driver. And they were loving this. They were loving this little Bonnie and Clyde life that they had going on. They had no remorse. And then they decided to take it one step further than just robbing places because Susan had a vendetta. Susan had a big feud with a woman called Selena Varich. So Susan started blackmailing Selena and Selena wasn't responding to the blackmail. So Richard and Susan decide to pay Selena a visit with a gun. And Richard, with a gun, threatens Selena and says that he will kill her her father, her daughter, everyone. And he's been really threatening. He's been really violent. He rips her phone off the wall. He throws her to the ground. He smashes her face in with his gun and blood is pouring from Selena's face. Now, Selena, poor Selena, she is absolutely terrified right now. They force Selena to go in the shower, clean herself up, wash the blood off her face and go to the bank and get them $6,000, which Selena does. And as soon as they get their money, they just abandon Selena on the side of the road and her head is still bleeding. She actually required eight stitches for her wound. And I think that just really sums up what Susan and Richard are like together. They're even worse when they are together. They're feeding off each other. They continued to rob different places after this. Richard even at one point robs a bank because they don't have any cameras and he could. And he manages to steal $4,000 from this bank. And this crime spree, this whole Bonnie and Clyde act continues for six months. And then on the 20 
21st of March 1985, six months after the crime spree started, the pair of them got pulled over for a dodgy taillight. It's always just those really minor traffic offenses, isn't it, that people get caught with. The officers realized that there was a warrant out for both of their arrests, and that is how they both finally got caught. Richard received a 16-year sentence, and Susan only received six months. She definitely played Oh, I'm just innocent. I was just there. I was just the getaway driver. It wasn't me. And remember I said that Susan was a piece of work. Wow, this is not really to do with the story, but I had to include it. So Susan, after she got out after six months, she gets married again, even though she's already married. So she gets married to this man called Mike, who is now her second husband, her second current husband. And then three months after they got married, Mike is found dead. And it turns out that Susan got her boyfriend. Yep, she actually has two husbands and a boyfriend. Susan got her boyfriend to murder Mike for inheritance money. The boyfriend went to prison, but Susan got away with it and she inherited $300,000. She bought herself a nice new car. She used the money to continue on seeing Richard in prison. Richard and Susan got engaged, even though she's still married. But that engagement didn't last too long because Susan got bored and she broke off the engagement and apparently Richard was heartbroken. So because he was heartbroken, he turned her in basically and she got arrested for bigamy and she was sentenced to six years. So yeah, that's Susan, told you she was a piece of work. But anyway, that wasn't really that important to the story, but I just thought that that was so crazy. I had to include it. Okay, so now we get to 1993. Richard is now 39 years old. This is eight years into his 16 year sentence. And this is when he gets released. Seriously, seriously, why? When will people realize that you can't release people like Richard? He has proven time and time again that he is a violent, now sexual, repeated offender and he has no plans in stopping. Why are we releasing him? Apparently there was an issue with overcrowding in the prison, which is why he was released, which I get it. Okay, I do. There is overcrowding problems all over the world in prisons, but could you not release anybody else? Like why have we released Richard? Because unfortunately this is now where we get to the tragic events of today's case. If Richard was kept in prison, this case wouldn't have happened. So in July of 1993, he is released from prison and he lives in like a halfway house and he actually seems like he's getting his life back on track. He gets himself a job. He has regular meetings with a parole officer and everything actually seems to be going okay. And three months after his release, he gets permission from his parole officer to go visit his mom. And his mom is currently living in a town called Petaluma. So Richard makes his way to Petaluma, but unfortunately it wasn't just his mom that lived in Petaluma because 12-year-old Polly Class also lived in Petaluma. And whilst Richard was in Petaluma, he was seen loitering the streets, hanging around at the local parks. He was watching kids play in the park and it is thought that Richard saw 
Polly class in those few days where he was just loitering around. It can't be confirmed that he saw Polly, but there was a very good chance that he did. And he decided at some point that Polly was going to be his next victim. Now, Polly class was born on the 3rd of January, 1981 to her parents, Mark and Eve. Now, Mark and Eve had gotten a divorce when Polly was two years old, but even though their relationship had broken down, they still really got along and they co-parented really well. Now, Eve did go on to remarry and she had another child in this relationship. So Polly now had a sibling and the family did move around quite a lot. But despite this, her dad, Mark, always followed her. Whenever Eve and her new husband would move house, Polly's dad, Mark, would always move near to them so he could be close to his daughter. Mark and Polly were so close. Polly would spend most of her weekends at her dad's house. Growing up, Polly was said to be shy and withdrawn at times, but she still had an incredible sense of humor. She was always making her family and friends laugh. She was so sarcastic. She loved dressing up. She was just always cracking jokes and she loved to make people laugh. And she had dreams of being an actress one day. She also loved reading books and comics. Ice cream and popcorn were her favorite treats. And she was really close to her grandparents as well. They always went on road trips. And she was just a really happy child. She was living her best life. She was only 12 years old. So she's just about to become a teenager. She's kind of figuring out who she is and what she likes. But there was one thing that Polly was scared of and that was the dark. She had a lifelong fear of the dark and she just could not get to sleep unless there was a light on. And she also had one other fear and that was of the boogeyman. She was scared that this mysterious boogeyman would one day break into her home and kidnap her. And Polly would voice this fear to her parents quite a lot. It was very known that this was her fear and her parents would always comfort her and try and reassure her and they would tell her, Polly, don't worry, we'll always be here to protect you. And this just honestly is what makes this case, I mean, the whole thing, but this in particular is what makes this case so sad because this was her biggest fear. So we now get to October 1st of 1993. Polly is currently living with just her mom and her younger sister. Her mom had now separated from her second husband. And the three of them were now living in the town of Petaluma, which is just outside of San Francisco. Now, Polly on this night was having a slumber party. She had invited her two best friends over, Kate and Gillian. And these three girls were so close. They were all in the school band together. They actually all played clarinet. So they were really close. They were having so much fun at this slumber party. They were playing dress up. They were trying to decide what they wanted to be for Halloween that was coming up. And they were putting makeup on each other. And they were just having a really good time. Now, Polly's mom was currently suffering from a migraine. So she asked the girls if they could be a little bit quiet because she was going to bed. She took her medication and she was going to sleep. And this was around 10 p.m. that Polly's mom went to bed. Now, what she didn't realize is that literally right at that moment, there was this strange, creepy man lurking outside of her home. So the three girls are currently in Polly's room. They are having so much fun. They are still carrying on the party. They're playing board games. And then a little while later, approximately 30 minutes or so, Polly goes to get sleeping bags for the other two girls that are downstairs. So Polly opens up her bedroom door and stood there in the door frame is the mysterious boogeyman. And he is holding a knife in his hand. And who is the boogeyman? Well, of course, it is Richard 
Alan Davis. Now, Polly, I can't even imagine what was going through her mind at that exact moment because this is her fear. I mean, anybody would be absolutely terrified right now, but this is her fear. This is what she has been scared of her whole life. Richard steps into the room and he is holding a knife and he says, don't scream or I'll slit your throat. The other two, Kate and Gillian, at first they think that this is a practical joke, that this man is a family friend or a family member of Polly's and he's just messing around. They see the terror on Polly's face and they realize that this is 100% real. Richard seems to be fascinated at finding out whose home this is. He's like, whose house is this? Who lives here? And Polly's so scared, she replies, I do. Richard then says he's not going to harm her. He just wants some money. Polly offers him $50 that is from her jewelry box, but he's not interested. Mm -mm, no, Polly is begging him, don't hurt my mother or sister. This was all Polly cared about, protecting the others that were in the house. Now, Richard, he was just ignoring her. He didn't care. He says to the girls, lie on the floor, face down, and don't look at me. The three girls immediately did what he said. Now, the girls couldn't see what he was doing, but they could hear that he was rubbing around, moving things around, and he started to pick up random objects. He had some silk cloth. He picked up an electrical cord from a Nintendo game console, as well as a leather strap from Polly's purse. He used these items to bind the girl's hands behind their back, and he also used the silk cloth to gag them. He then removed the pillowcases from the pillows before placing them over their head. He finally then picks up Polly, and he tells the other two girls to count to 1,000. Don't move, count to 1,000, and Polly will be back. And he walked out of the room carrying Polly. And now Richard had Polly. He walked out of the house, he placed Polly in his car, and he drove off. Now, Kate and Gillian, they had been told, obviously, to count to 1,000, but they were not about to listen. As soon as Richard left the room, they tried so hard to free themselves. And as soon as they got free, they rushed into Polly's mom's room to wake her up because she had been asleep this whole time. They told her exactly what had happened. And Polly's mom, Eve, immediately dialed 911. Now, police are dispatched to the house very, very quickly. And then around an hour later, approximately 25 miles away from Polly's home. Another 911 call comes in. Now, this call was from a woman called Dana. And she says to the operator, there's this strange man on my property. He's lurking around outside. He's on my private property and he seems to have crashed his car. Now, this man was Richard Allen Davis. Now, the police arrive on that scene and they find Richard in his car that has been crashed into a ditch. Now, the police are saying, what are you doing here? This is private property. You can't be here. And Richard responds that he is sightseeing. Now, bear in mind, this is pretty much midnight. What are you sightseeing on this random property at midnight? And then he pulls a beer out and starts drinking, which of course the police are like, uh, uh, no, 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 you can't do that. They tell Richard that he immediately needs to leave the property because it's a private property. And Richard is like, 
I can't. My car is stuck. The police ask Dana, the owner of the property, if she wants the police to arrest Richard. And she says, no, I just want him gone. I just want him off my property. So the police help Richard get his car out of the ditch. Now the police check their database. Now this is 1993. They don't have the databases that they have now. So they just check to see if there is a warrant out for his arrest, which at this time there is not. They have no idea about his criminal background. And they also haven't been informed Informed that they should be on the lookout for a man, a strange, mysterious man that has abducted 12-year-old Polly. So because they're not aware of any of this, they just let Richard go. They were not aware that this man, approximately one to two hours prior, had kidnapped Polly class. And we don't know where Polly is at this moment because obviously she wasn't in the car. The police didn't see her. She may have been in the trunk or she may have been in some nearby bushes. We actually just don't know where Polly is at this point. And if these officers had been made aware of what was going on in Petaluma, there may have been a chance to save Polly at this point. And it's just so tragic to think about that the outcome of this case could have been so different. So because Richard has escaped, the search for Polly continues. The FBI were called in to deal with this because they are better equipped at dealing with child kidnappings. They scan every inch of Polly's bedroom to look for any piece of evidence, but they pretty much have none. All they find is a partial print of a palm, not even fingerprints, a palm print. There is also lots of eyewitness testimony of this strange, mysterious man lurking around because quite a few people had seen Richard around the area. He was hanging around for days before he did this to Polly. And then we also have the eyewitness testimony of Kate and Gillian. So they have this really good sketch of Richard and what he looks like, but they still don't know who Richard is. So many people from the local area had volunteered to try and help find Polly. Flyers were being handed out everywhere. Days went by and there was still no sign of Polly. And at this point, the story had made national news. Polly's devastated parents were making pleas to the public to help them to come forward if they know anything. They even wrote a letter to a newspaper pleading to the kidnapper to release their daughter. And it also became a huge news story on the internet. Yes, the internet. And obviously this happened in 19 1993. The internet is literally only two years old at this point. And at this stage in the internet, it wasn't normal for missing children, missing persons to be an internet story. But there was just something about the story of Polly. I think it was the fact that she was abducted from her own home that really just took to people's hearts and people wanted to help. People started covering the internet with her image. So her picture was being shared on these bulletin boards, which which I suppose is probably the closest thing in 1993 to social media. And this case is actually known to be the first ever case that was spread by the internet. And it's thought that at the time, Polly's face had been seen by more people than any other child abduction ever in history. And it was at this point that Winona Ryder got involved. Like I said, this case, it made news. A lot of people were talking about it. It turns out that Winona Ryder went to the same junior high school as Polly. And Winona Ryder also grew up in the same area as Polly. So when she found out about the case of Polly, she was absolutely devastated. This had happened in her hometown and she wanted to help. So Winona Ryder offered up a $200,000 reward for 
for the safe return of Polly. And then because of Winona Ryder, because she got involved, this made the story even bigger. It was now making it onto celebrity news channels like E! and MTV. It reached so many people. But even though so many people knew about this case, so many people were talking about it, Polly was still nowhere to be seen. A few more weeks pass and the police are still making no progress. They start to get a ton of false leads. There was even one time where a teenage girl phoned up Mark Class and pretended to be Polly. And that is sick and disgusting. I don't care that she's a teenager. She knows better. And then on the 19th of October, 18 days after the kidnapping, guess what? the police run into Richard. The police pull Richard over for drink driving. They take him down to the station and they hold him in the station for questioning for five hours. And nobody at this police station notices that he looks exactly the same as the sketch of Polly's kidnapper. And this sketch is everywhere, by the way. This sketch is up in the police station where Richard is at and nobody notices. More days pass more weeks pass. And the case actually continues to build momentum, which is not normally the case. Polly's dad sets up a charity called the Polly Class Foundation, and loads of people from all over the world start to donate to it to help find Polly. A huge benefit concert was held to raise awareness. So many people performed, and comedians performed, including Robin Williams. And thousands of leads and tips were pouring into the FBI, but two months go by and Polly is still not found. But then finally, on the 28th of November, 1993, another 911 call comes in. And this 911 call comes in from Dana. Do you remember Dana? Dana is the property owner where Richard crashed his car on her private property. And this call would completely change the investigation. Because when she called up 911, she said that she had discovered a few items that were concerning on her property. And she came across a dark red sweatshirt, some tights, some children's tights, and some silk cloth, along with a condom wrapper, a unrolled, unused condom, a beer bottle, and some binding tape. And she said to the officers, what about if these clothes if this stuff is connected to Polly. And she also remembers that there was a strange man on her property on the night that Polly was abducted. So the police search their records and they see that the man that was on her property was Richard Allen Davis. And of course, he has an extensive criminal background, so they have a photo of him, and he looks exactly like the sketch of Polly's kidnapper. So now they pretty much know who has kidnapped Polly. They manage to track him down. He is currently staying at his sister's house, and they immediately take him into custody. So when they take him into custody, a couple of things happen. First of all, they were able to match his palm print to the palm print that they found at the scene. And Kate and Gillian, Polly's two best friends that were at the house, were able to pick out Richard from a lineup. So the officers were like, okay, we have our man. But the thing that the officers wanted to know was where is Polly? Is she still alive? And this is when Richard starts to tell his 
story, which we have to take with a grain of salt, of course. So he starts by saying that he arrived in Petaluma to find his mother, who apparently lives there. I don't even know if she actually does, but he couldn't find his mom. Mm-mm, no, couldn't find her. So he decided to just hang around the area for a few days. He went to some parks, sat on some benches, did some drinking. He then bought some marijuana and he started to smoke it. And then all of a sudden he realized that something wasn't right. Something wasn't right with the marijuana. It must be laced with PCP. Don't know how he would know that, but apparently as soon as he started smoking, everything went foggy, which is very, very convenient, isn't it? So anyway, when things went foggy, Richard said that he can kind of recall at some point in the night, he broke into Polly's home. He can't ever remember meeting Polly before. He said that he'd never seen her before. And then he says that he doesn't remember taking Polly doesn't remember anything. He doesn't remember anything about inside the house. And then all of a sudden he was in his car and he was driving and Polly was next to him. Richard was very confused about what had happened. He didn't have a clue why Polly was there, who Polly was, how she even got there. And he just kept driving. He didn't know what to do. And this is when he ended up on Dana's property because somehow he had crashed his car into a ditch. And then he decided to take Polly out of the car, hide her in some bushes, and then he just left her there. He returned to his car, then the police turned up, and Richard kept the police talking for long enough so they weren't suspicious. The police then left, and then 30 minutes after the police had left, when Richard was certain that the coast was clear, this is where things would take a tragic because he returned to where he left Polly. And in that moment, he realized that he couldn't let Polly go. Polly would recognize his face. He would get caught. He would get arrested again and sent back to prison. And he didn't want that to happen. He didn't want to go back to prison. So he realized that there was only one option. And that was that he had to murder Polly. And then he used a piece of cloth that he had to strangle Polly. And this is when Polly Class very sadly lost her life. He then dragged her body in some nearby bushes, woodland area, and covered her body very badly with just some branches and twigs and leaves and stuff. And then he just got back into his car and drove away. Now, this is the story that Richard has said. So according to Richard, Polly was still alive alive when those police officers were called to Dana's property and Richard was speaking to them. And oh my God, if that is true, if Polly was still alive, that is just absolutely just so tragic that she could have been saved in that moment. Now, the officers were very skeptical about Richard's story. The fact that he couldn't remember anything was definitely very suspicious. So the officers wanted to confirm whether this story was true. So they asked Richard to take them to where he disposed of Polly's body, which he did. And very sadly, Polly Class had lost her life. And this next bit is definitely hard to listen to. But when they came across Polly's body, it was very, very badly decomposed. It was pretty much exposed to the elements for two months. And because of animal activity, most of Polly's skin was missing. Her abdominal cavity had been eaten away. Most of her muscles and her insides were missing and all that was left 
left was pretty much her skeleton. And for the portions of skin that still remained, it is said that these had dried into a mummified state. However, there were still clothes remaining on Polly's body. She still had her underwear on. However, her blouse and her miniskirt had been pulled up. And also her legs were left in a position where they were spread apart. And when an autopsy was carried out, her body was so badly decomposed that there was no way to confirm how she actually died. They just had to take Richard's word for it that she was strangled. But there was one thing found during the autopsy, which is truly, truly disturbing. Traces of Richard's semen were found on the body. And of course, given the position that Polly's legs were left in, police were quick to question, did Richard sexually assault Polly. Now Richard has completely denied this 100%. He's like, mm, no, didn't do it. And apparently he has no idea why his semen was found on her body. But he did say at least it wasn't found inside of her. And after the discovery of the body, Richard Allen Davis was charged with first degree murder. He was sent to jail awaiting trial. So nearly three years pass and in the summer of 1996, Richard's case finally goes to trial. And even though three years had passed, there was still so much public interest in this case. So much so, they actually had to hold the trial away from Petaluma because there was so much public hate towards Richard. So the trial starts and Richard's charges are first degree murder, kidnapping, and also quote, an attempted lewd act on a child because there wasn't enough evidence to determine rape. And Richard's defense didn't try to deny anything. However, they did try and say that he was very confused. He didn't know what he was doing. And also because of his traumatic childhood. And the prosecution were having none of this. They were like, uh-uh, no way. So many people have trauma in their lives. So many people have had to go through horrific things and they don't murder people. That was a choice. That was a choice that Richard made. And the jury agreed. And he was found guilty of first degree murder, which obviously means that it was premeditated. Unfortunately, though, the courtroom drama was not over yet. Because now we get to Richard's sentencing hearing. And Richard really wanted to play up to the crowd for this one. And this just proves to everyone that Richard Allen Davis is a monster. During the sentencing hearing, Polly's family were asked if they wanted to give a victim impact statement, which Polly's dad, Mark, did stand up and say a few words. He said that his life was in ruins, that he couldn't sleep, he can't concentrate, and that he misses his little girl with all of his heart. And then he turned to Richard and said, quote, Mr. Davis, when you get to where you're going, say hello to Hitler, to Dharma, and to Bundy. Good riddance. And then Richard, unfortunately, was also allowed to address the court. And he stood up and he turned to Polly's dad and said, the main reason why I didn't sexually assault your daughter that night was because of what your daughter said to me, which was just don't do what my dad does. In response to this, there was an audible gasp in the courtroom and Mark actually stood up and shouted, burn in hell. Mark was actually escorted from the courtroom and then Richard turned to the cameras in the courtroom 
and put his middle fingers up. And this right here, this little altercation in the courtroom, tells you everything. It tells you that he has no remorse about what he has done. It also tells you that his story about being confused about what he was doing and he wasn't aware of what he was doing is complete BS. Because if that was true, if he wasn't aware of what he was doing, if he was confused, blah, 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 he would have remorse. The judge then turned to Richard and said that his repulsive statement to Polly's dad made his decision that day very easy. And this is when Richard Allen Davis was sentenced to death. In the aftermath of this case, there continued to be an impact. Winona Ryder, who obviously offered up the reward, she starred in Little Women in 1994, which was a year after Polly's kidnapping. And she dedicated her performance in Little Women to Polly Class because Little Women was actually Polly's favorite book. And also in 1994, the Three Strikes Act in California was signed into law. The law basically means that on a third conviction, the offender must get a longer sentence because they have proven that they are a repeat offender, that they are a danger to society. And it was this case, the case of Polly Class, that really influenced California to introduce that law. Because if that law had been in place, Richard Allen Davis would have been in prison. He would not have been able to kidnap and murder Polly because he had committed so many offenses. And each time he was given such a small sentence and he was released way before he should have been. And Richard Allen Davis is still alive today. He still sits on death row in San Quentin prison. Also in the aftermath, Richard was diagnosed with schizoid personality disorder, which um, we actually discussed that disorder in the case of Stephen Griffiths. And that disorder, it basically just means that a person struggles to feel emotion. They struggle to feel any kind of emotion, whether that is happiness or sadness. Having that disorder doesn't make you a murderer. He was a sexually motivated and violent offender and he should never have been released from prison to harm Polyclass. Polyclass was described as a caring, loving, and sweet young girl. She had a huge sense of humor. She loved to make people laugh. She was the light of her family's life. She loved music. She loved theater. She loved performance. And she had huge dreams of becoming an actress one day. She was incredibly close to her mom, her dad, her sister, and her grandparents. All she thought about in her final moments was how to keep her family safe. And she is hugely missed by them every day. She was taken far, far too soon from this world. She was only 12 years old. And if she was still alive today, she would be 42 years old. And she should be here. She should be here. She should have been able to live her life and fulfill her dreams. And what makes this case so heartbreaking is that Polly's worst nightmare came true. What she went through in those final hours, it's just too hard to even think about. And there is one final thing that I want to mention, which is the Polly Class Foundation, which was set up by her father, Mark, and is actually still up and running to this this day. And to date, the Polyclass Foundation has helped over 100,000 families with missing children cases. And thankfully, in 97% of those cases, the children are returned safely. But I think it just really hits home how big this problem is. They have helped so many families, but it turns out that there are hundreds of thousands of children reported missing 
every year in the US alone. It's a huge problem, huge, huge problem. And it's just amazing what these charities like the Polyclass Foundation do and how much impact they actually do have. I will leave a link to the charity, the Polyclass Foundation in the description down below. They are always accepting donations and I will 100% be donating after this video. And that is the end of today's case, which is truly a heartbreaking one. Child abduction cases always are. But I feel like this one, it just feels a little bit worse because it didn't have to happen. I mean, of course, no child abduction cases need to happen, but the fact is he should have been in prison. He should never have been walking the streets. And that brings us to the end of the episode on Polyclass, which was a very, very heartbreaking story. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening today. Subscribe or follow to make sure you never miss an episode of The Criminal Makeup. And if you enjoy the show, it would really mean a lot if you could leave a five-star review. In the meantime, if you've been affected by any of the themes in this episode, please take the time to look at the description for this episode for some helpful resources. Special thanks to my producers at Audio Boom Studios, and I'll see you all in the next one.